Hello and welcome to the Bridge Church podcast. I'm not going to lie to you, Matt. I am feeling pretty flat because this is our second time recording <laughs> because I messed up the microphones last time. But sure, we'll keep going. Dave's fault, not mine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely my fault. Um, well, we've had a wee bit of interaction from our listeners. Elaine and Claire, Elaine McDonald, Claire Colick, have suggested to call this podcast the Bridge the Gap podcast because mm. it bridges the gap between sermon and life group. It bridges the gap between them and us to get to know our fun, jovial nature. <laughs> um, so, bridge the gap. Nice. Yeah, I like that. Bridge, bridge cast. Bridgecast sounds very sort of polished and professional. I'm not sure if that's us or not, but I, li- I like the name. Yeah, I, d- I do like Bridge the Gap, I've got to say. <laughs> I, I no offence, Dave. Yeah, sorry. I can't really say that we're professional after I messed up the <laughs> microphones. But anyway, um, let's start off like we always do, Matt, by talking about the sermon from Sunday. Mm-hmm. Um, we looked at Revelation 2, 1-11, so the church's Jesus' letter to the churches in Ephesus and Smyrna. What would you have loved to have spent some time digging into? I noticed on Sunday that you did a wee bit of plugging of the podcast during the sermon, a bit of cheeky advertising. So you mentioned that you wanted to talk about the 10 days and who the angels are that John is writing to. Shall we take the angels first? Who are the angels? Sure. Well, I honestly find this one a bit hard to be sure about. And I've been back and forth in it myself over the years. So there's two basic views of who the angels of the churches are. One view is that the angels aren't the angelic beings we automatically think of when we read our Bibles, but they're angels as in messengers. So they could be human beings either sent to the churches or resident in the churches. So one version of this view is Hendrickson, William Hendrickson in his commentary. He believes that the angels are the pastors, the (laughs) elders of the churches. I tried to say that without laughing. Um, you, you can see why I might find that an attractive uh, interpretation, the bridge I, elders as angels. I definitely have some angelic qualities, I'd like to say. Definitely my voice, my singing voice. Yeah, no comment. <laughs> but he and others go that way because these angels are written to as representatives of the church and they seem to be rebuked along with the church, which would seem unlikely for an angel, really. So that, that's why Hendrickson and others take that approach. On the other hand, then others make the point that normally in the New Testament and Revelation, the word used here is used for angelic beings, and that's the most natural interpretation. So the angels are kind of like guardian or representative angels for the churches. They're like heavenly counterparts for the congregations they watch over. And, and what's recently swung me this way is the realisation that it's the most natural meaning and the fact that the rebukes are addressed to the angels doesn't mean they have to be implicated in the sin of the churches. So with apologies to all elders and pastors listening, I think the angels are probably just that, angels. Not that either view makes a big difference to interpreting the passage, I've got to say, but the lovely thing about this view is it helps maintain a supernatural focus, which I think is exciting and I think that's comforting. I'm quite glad you didn't include that on Sunday to make all that point and just be like, doesn't really matter though. It's just an interesting side point. I know that's yeah, not what you said. I didn't think it was a good idea to try and squeeze that in. Yeah, but um, okay, so next thing you wanted to dive into, I think, was about the 10 days of persecution, which mm. was the church in Smyrna. Why did you say that we shouldn't take them as a literal 
10 days because there's a lot of numbers and symbolism and revelation because you presumably agree that the seven churches were literally seven churches so can you help us understand sort of the symbolism and numbers in revelation yeah good question so if there's if there's seven literal churches why say it's not 10 literal days well, take the, the seven churches first. In the context of the letters, these churches are actual historical churches, yes. But then you've got to ask the question, why does Jesus choose seven churches to write to, not six churches or eight churches? Because the number seven is a significant biblical number. It's a number that keeps coming up in the book of Revelation. And the answer is that seven is a number of completeness and perfection. So these real historical churches still have got a representative function as the worldwide church in the first century and in fact the church across all ages and I think that's what something like the number seven shows us it's a complete number a perfect number it's a representative number in so many ways and to come back to the number 10 which is where we kind of started with this question yeah <laughs> um, when you read Revelation you have to ask what's contextually most likely that the numbers are literal exact numbers or that the numbers are symbolic of something important so was the church in Smyrna really expected, really told that they were going to suffer for 10 literal days for a week and a half? <laughs> so, you know, historically, that seemed pretty unlikely, doesn't it? It seems more likely that, again, that the number 10 there is symbolic. It's another number of completeness and perfection. And what it stands for is a set and complete time known to God, not a week and a half period. So we'll have reason to come back to numbers a lot as we go through Revelation. Here's the, here's the big point that we'll keep coming back to. For most of Revelation, most of the time, the best way in context to take the picture language is symbolically, not literalistically. We said that previously. So, for example, Jesus is a man, not a lamb. The idea of him being a lamb stands for important truth. But also the numbers are part of that symbolism. So we don't take the numbers literalistically, but we take the numbers as symbolic of vital truths as we go through the book, including the number 10 for the 10 days of persecution. Yeah, so if I'm a believer in Smyrna and there's, a, there's 11 days of persecution, I'm not thinking Jesus isn't in control, the lamb doesn't win because this is longer than 10, you know, week, exactly, you know, yeah. earthly days. Okay, yeah. that's helpful. Um, so you've mentioned for the church in Ephesus that it's love for Jesus that they've lost. That's their first love that they lost. But if I remember correctly from the sermon, you seem to indicate that some commentators, some people think differently. Why do you think it's love for Jesus that they've lost rather than love for one another or love for lost people? Why, mm. why is it a lost love of Jesus? To be fair to all the different camps on this one, um, because the commentators take different views on who this love that's been lost is for. To be fair to the different camps, the text, when you read it, what Jesus dictates to John, doesn't specify who this love is for, who this lost love is for. It could be for one another in the church. It could be love for the culture surrounding the church, love for the lost world that they've lost. But again, as we keep saying, context is king. And Jesus has just started dictating his letters to these churches he loves after a glorious vision of himself. If you remember right from chapter one of himself as God and king and judge and priest. So 
When he speaks of this vital love being lost in the Church of Ephesus, I think it's most natural to take it as a love for him, a love for Jesus that they've lost. Mm. So context is all important again. Of course, the beauty of that understanding of his words, that it's love for Jesus, is that that does encompass those other two loves, doesn't it? If we truly and passionately love the Jesus who has saved us and the Jesus who is keeping us, we will love one another and we will proclaim him to the world in love. But I, I think the most natural way in context to take it is it's love for Jesus that he's talking about here. Yeah, because love for Jesus is the root of our works and yeah. the fruit is then loving one another and loving neighbour. Yeah, absolutely. You, you can't produce love for Jesus out of mm. loving other people and loving the world. No, it's, so. it's core to those other loves, isn't it? Yeah. And I think that's why it's most natural to take it as love for Jesus there. Yeah, okay, that's very helpful. Okay, M Matt, let's do a bit of diagnosis. Dr. Matt, what might it look like if someone has lost their first love? <laughs> Dr. Matt. <laughs> yeah, putting the pressure on again, Dave. I, I think that's a very good question. It's also a bit of a dangerous question to answer in a sense because we can't read people's hearts and um, this could also look like a huge variety of different realities in different Christian lives, couldn't it? When, when someone's starting to lose their first love for the Lord. So there is a bit of danger here and we've got to be a bit careful. And also I'm inevitably going to be a bit subjective in answering that and end up speaking a lot from my own experience. But I guess I can suggest a few signs, a few red flags, if you like, that uh, that you'd see in someone's heart, I'd see in my heart, if I'm starting to lose my first love for Jesus. Take take the means of grace, Bible reading and prayer, two of the means of grace we often end up talking about in church. Now, it's possible to be doing those things, reading your Bible and praying. It's possible to be doing those things mechanically and habitually, and they aren't necessarily stirring our love for Jesus as they should, though I... I'd rather see someone doing them out of mere habit than not doing them at all. But I mention them because if they aren't in my life at all, if I'm not talking to Jesus regularly, if I'm not taking the time to talk to and listen to Jesus, then that's certainly a warning sign of waning love in my heart for the Lord. And I also, I suppose I could add, I also think personally, this is a pretty subjective one again, that one marker of the level of my love is what happens in me when I when I hear the name Jesus. I know this might sound pretty charismatic, a bit, a bit <laughs> mystical maybe to some, but what I'm saying is I think what my heart does, as well as my mind, when someone mentions my Saviour's name, tells me something about the level of my love for him. When my heart skips a little, I think that's a good sign. When the name Jesus becomes just a word, I need to turn back to Jesus and ask him to restore my first love. So, pardon me using a personal example in your case Dave I'm guessing when someone says the name Amy to you that's not just a word to you your heart probably does a little something and yes, skips a beat there something definitely happened there <laughs> <laughs> and and even more so for the Christian not in a romantic way but in a deeper far more important way when someone says the name Jesus I guess it's a good question to ask what effect does that have on my soul mm -hmm. so th this reminds me actually about a story JC Ryle told uh, People listening to this might have heard me tell this story before because I love it. I'm paraphrasing heavily here, but in his book, <laughs> Holiness, I think it is, he tells the story about an old Welsh woman who used to travel miles and miles to hear an English-speaking preacher, and she only spoke Welsh. And she was asked by somebody, why did you go 
all that way to listen to this English preacher when you don't understand most I'm, of what I'm, he says. I'm English preacher it, well, as well. <laughs> I know he's actually English, but he spoke in English. And her answer was basically, again, to paraphrase, I, I go to hear him because he, he names the name of Jesus so much. And I love to hear the name of my Saviour. She so loved hearing the name Jesus spoken in love that that's the reason she went all that way. So the question is, I think, as one of the markers of love in our hearts, what effect does it have when someone says in our presence the name Jesus? Yeah, let me pick up on two things, just two quick things. Because hmm. on Sunday you mentioned about we're doing duty without delight. That's a sign of losing hmm. love for Jesus, which what you talked about there, yeah. how just habitual Bible reading or prayer there's no delight in it there's no joy in it hmm. that's very helpful I've, i really like that that's a tweet basically <laughs> duty without delight that's a danger hmm. of religion and i suppose that the way people say the name of jesus that can be quite important just in our day-to-day -day lives whenever people take the lord's name in vain i can hmm. think of a previous time for me whenever someone in my rugby team kept saying jesus name in vain and eventually I just had to challenge him on and say, that, like, that is my saviour's name. That means more than mm. anything than the entire world to me. Mm. You can't just say that name flippantly because it means too much to me. It's just helpful. It's not just about, you know, saying Jesus, you know, to one another. Yeah. It's about how other people use his name. And if it's used negatively, we've mm. got to challenge that and be salt and light. Yeah, you know, at the risk of another tangent here, I think... Christians have got to bear in mind the command not to take the Lord's name in vain. And, and I know we that doesn't mean we go around blaspheming in church, but sometimes maybe we say God's names in the Old Testament. We say the name of Jesus and we, we just say it kind of in a throwaway fashion. And we need to hear that that warning as well, that um, not, not because we lose our salvation. We're, we're loved, we're accepted. But how do we think of and treat the name of God, the name of Jesus? And what's our heart response when we hear it said? Yeah, very helpful. Um, you touched on it on Sunday, but um, since you've got your PPE on, you're a doctor right now, give us what medicine or cure would you give for someone with those sort of symptoms of losing their love for Jesus? What would you say to someone who has a full-on sort of chaotic life and you recognize some of these symptoms? Yeah. What's what's mm. the dosage medicine you're recommending? <laughs> well, just a few sort of quick bullets on that, I think. And again, this is quite personal, I suppose, for me, quite subjective, but praying aloud if you're able to even in the the chaos of, of the day and even if quite briefly just praying aloud uh, i find can really help telling the lord that that you love him uh, i think we struggle with that sometimes maybe especially guys men struggle with that telling jesus you love him but again this isn't just a, this isn't a romantic love this is a different and deeper thing telling the lord you love him helps to stir love for him and simply asking him to increase your love for him as he as he helps you grasp the depths of his love for you i think we can sometimes miss the basics so i feel that my love for jesus is weak and faint what can i do and i do all sorts of things and i don't go to the lord and say lord help me to love you more <laughs> i think that's that's quite basic and quite important and just reminding ourselves there's always more of jesus to be had so um i love quoting some people know samuel rutherford the uh, the scottish pastor and theologian and he said this about jesus his love hath neither brim nor bottom and I, I love that it's a reminder that however overwhelmed with Jesus I might be however much I might feel I love him there's always more of him to know and to love and that encourages me to, to press on every day to, to try and grasp more of Jesus and how wonderful he is 
We've had JC Ryle, an Englishman. We've had a <laughs> Scottish preacher. I'm uh-huh. waiting. I'm waiting for the Doctor to be mentioned, and I'm waiting for C.S. Lewis, just oh, so that we man. get I'll, the full the full. I'll see if in. I can work the Doctor in at some point. If not today, maybe next time. <laughs> well, okay. Sorry, I'm always distracting us. Um, what What about you? Might have a friend who you sort of think I'm worried that they are losing their first love they're losing their love of jesus what would you recommend what should i do as a friend in that situation i think the word friend is key that's the first thing to say again we've got to be careful about judging what's going on in other people's hearts but if if you really are a friend to someone if you're close to them you have a relationship you you get to know where they're at where their heart's at and and we've we've got a role then in the lives of our christian friends haven't we and I guess if we if we sense that they may be losing their first love or that they're honest enough to say that they feel that their love is waning, encourage them to do all the above, all the things we've just been talking about, definitely. But also just making the time to hang out with them. Hmm. Keep hanging out with them. Talk about the weather, the rugby, the kids, life, yes. But, but just quite intentionally always bring Jesus into the conversation. When my friends are... What I found over the years is my friends who were always hanging out with Jesus, if I can put it that way, that that leads to me wanting to be with Jesus more because because they're with the Lord and it, it kind of rubs off on me. It affects me. It infects me. Mm. So have friends, be with them, talk to them about Jesus, offer to pray with them, mm. read the Bible with them. Again, a little bit of a tangent, but I, I think you'll probably let me do it. And we're starting to see across the Bridge Church little clusters of people meeting in twos, threes, fours, men meeting together, women meeting together, catching up every few weeks to, to read the Bible and pray together. Nothing terribly structured maybe, but just doing it regularly. And, and I'd really encourage people to think about doing that. And, and if they're not sure who to do that with, come and chat to me, come and chat to you, Dave, or one of the other elders. And we can point them to maybe one or two people they could helpfully meet with just to do this very thing because we need Sundays, we need Sunday worship together so desperately, we need life groups, but there's also something powerful about pairs and triplets of brothers and sisters doing discipleship together, and that way we can keep each other's love for Jesus burning. And I suppose with the coronavirus and everything that's going on at the moment, it's quite easy whenever we talk to friends or loved ones who know the Lord that we just complain about restrictions, about <laughs> lockdown, about things that are going wrong in the world yeah. but we actually need to remind one another of gospel truths so we we, we might grumble yeah. but let's sort of have a framework of that grumbling and think about how god's sovereignty how his goodness and kindness how he's making us more like jesus yeah that's really helpful to do not just to mm. not just to moan yeah and, and to be intentional about it it doesn't necessarily happen automatically we've got to be intentional to do this yeah yeah, and do you know what? You might come across as a keen bean, but it's good to be keen about Jesus. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> um, so we're we're going to leave first love to the side now. Um, whenever whenever we read our Bibles, it's always important to do observation, look at the text, note sort of things that confuse us, or we might have questions about, or things that are repeated. And if you look in all the letters to the churches, we'll see at the top that. The letters addressed to the whole church then at the end it talks about individuals why is this so like can we apply how do we apply this i think that's my yeah, question yeah. Uh, i think a couple of things to say there one is that i think 
one of the reasons Jesus speaks this way, firstly to the whole church and then more sort of to the individuals, whoever and the one who mm. at the end of his letters is, is partly, I guess, to for us to be encouraged as individual Christians, isn't it? So just imagine the scenario. Ephesus loses its first love or Laodicea stays lukewarm and Christ has to close down those churches. He has to take away those lampstands. Does that mean that any remaining faithful believers in those fellowships have lost their gospel hope, that they lost Jesus? Not at all. Surely not. No, no, exactly. Because the even if a church should fail and fall, the one, the individual who overcomes, who conquers, who keeps trusting in Jesus, will gain heaven. And so the, the letter endings remind us of that, I think, that even if a church should fail, if I'm trusting the Lord, I am secure, I am loved. I think the other reason that Jesus does this and we need this in the in revelation and in our new testaments is to remind us of the the balance in the christian life between the corporate and the individual Uh, it's it's not either or we keep saying this don't we on a lot of things it's not either or it's both and that we can't separate out those two realities i am an individual christian in my individual walk with the lord i must trust jesus personally but i'm part of a body i'm part of this gathering called the church i am an individual I must follow Jesus myself alone, actually, if absolutely necessary. But I'm meant to be part of, and I thrive as part of, a local church. What happens to me happens to the church. What happens to the church happens to me. So I think the other reason we see this in the letters is it's the Lord reminding us in Scripture that we are part of a a body, a family, an organism, and we shouldn't lose sight of that. But also we're individuals individually called to trust the Lord and walk with him. And I, I wonder if we need to rediscover that duality in in the the 21st century church in the uk yeah i this might be a bit cheeky to say but i wonder if we need that reminder you know especially sort of our individualistic culture especially now with virtual church where we can roll our bed at 9 59 and rock up and be there on time maybe even skip the breakout rooms because i don't fancy that and we don't actually realize that affects the body. That's not just that's not just affecting you. That's affecting everyone else because right. we're missing. Yeah. You know, Paul talks about in Corinthians, doesn't he, about how we need the hand, the ears, the eyes, the t- the toes of mm. the church. And actually, as individuals, if we're being selfish slash selfish, might be a bit harsh, but mm. if we are being lazy in our attitude towards church, it doesn't just affect you; it affects everyone. Yeah. And I, in the providence of God, I think that's surely one of the reasons we're looking at Revelation. It's always relevant for the church in every age, mm. relevant for us in the 21st century. But in a pandemic year where mm. we're doing so much online and it would be easy to disengage at an emotional level, maybe yeah. from our brothers and sisters in the church. It's a really timely reminder, isn't it? That what happens to us happens to the church and vice versa. Yeah. Um, so our last thing. This is, this is the plan of the podcast generally, but we're going to have some listeners' questions. So we do have a listener's question. First time ever. How exciting. Hey. I, <laughs> I saw him thrilled. It's just my Northern Irish drawl. I am buzzing for this great question. Um, so the, the question that we have is, are the letters part of John's vision of Jesus that we see in chapter one? That is a good question. I'm sorry that I laid it up so badly and so unenthusiastically. Uh are the letters part of John's vision of Jesus? Yes. Great. End of podcast. <laughs> See you next no, I, week. I guess I could I could flesh that out a bit. Can I say a little bit more than that? Um, I think 
It's a good question because we tend often, I tend to separate out the seven letters to the churches, which you hear quite a lot of preaching on, and then the rest of the apocalypse, which is all very apocalyptic and difficult. Um, Mental. Yes. No, well, no, I wouldn't have gone quite that far, Dave. But yeah, yeah, exactly. So we, we find it challenging, and so we, we separate out those two bits and think of them very separately, but we shouldn't. They're interwoven. They're organic part together of what Jesus is saying to the churches. So the, the whole revelation to Jesus encompasses these letters and the visions. Actually, the whole book is a letter. I don't know if we flagged that up enough right at the start of the series, Jim. Chapter 1, verse 4, we read, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and who is to come. It reads like one of Paul's letters. The whole of Revelation is a letter, but then within that letter, you've got all these visions and these seven letters to the churches, but they're all organically linked. So when you get to this initial vision of, of Jesus in chapter 1, uh, as part of that vision, you hear Jesus say, right therefore and he then speaks these seven letters to the churches to John so John is seeing and hearing Jesus in his vision and as part of that vision he gets the letters to the seven churches and so it's a good question important question and what's lovely about this is that it reminds us we don't have two hermetically sealed sections of revelation that don't link to each other sorry just for my dull brain hermetic yeah, I got to use the odd big word. Uh, so we we don't have two completely sealed off sections that that don't uh, interpenetrate each other. The the two parts of Revelation are, are interwoven; they're organically linked. So what we see is that as we go on through through Revelation, the images and the themes and the letters that we notice they will come up again, so many of them in the rest of Revelation. So we saw the tree of life and the second death in the first two letters. Those are images, those are themes that are going to come out again in Revelation. So, long answer to a simple question. Short answer, yes, the seven letters are part of John's vision of Jesus and they're, they're an organic part of the whole of Revelation. Don't separate them out. Great, very good. Well, we've reached the end and this is our round two, so we're fairly knackered. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> if you feel like this episode's been a bit long, don't worry, next week um, Matt's going to be interview- Well, talking to me about the sermon I do on Sunday. It'll so be really long. It'll probably be five minutes, <laughs> so <laughs> you have that to look forward to. Um, any questions, any feedback? If you're a fan of uh, Bridgecast or Podbridge, I don't know if you're a fan. I don't know what Podbridge. that was. Um, if you're a fan of those names for the podcast or have any questions, let us know. Have a good week. Bye-bye. We did it. We got to the end.